let's go ahead and dig, dig in. We've got a lot of work to do in the next 45 minutes. So, um, we're going to start here in Ephesians chapter 3. Sorry, Ephesians. Colossians chapter 3, um, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. But we know that in this passage of Ephesians that Paul still has something else in his mind than what he's talking about right here. If we hit rewind and go back a few weeks ago, we were at the beginning of chapter 3 where he says this. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And we really dug into this idea right here. Set your mind on things above. Set your minds on things above. This is, this is still in Paul's mind when he's writing these specifics about wives and husbands and children and slaves. He's still got this in his head. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And if you remember, we, we, we took pains to go through and talk about what does it mean for Christ to be our life? What does it mean for Christ to be our life? And what does he mean when he says, do not set your mind on things that are on the earth? And when he says, set your minds on things above, he's not talking about angels and clouds and flowers. He's talking about who's there, which is Christ. So what are we doing when we set our mind on things below? He's saying, what is it? Remember this. You probably recall this. What is it? that you were trusting in right now, that you have right now, that if that were taken from you, you'd be devastated. You'd be in despair. What is it that you have right now that's in your life? This is how we know what we're, what, what we're doing when we put our mind on things below. Think about it. It's what do you have right now in your life that if it was removed, would cause you despair? If they were gone, you would not know which way is up. It works out like this. I love Jesus. I trust Jesus. But I need this. Whatever you put in that blank is what is your life. It's not necessarily what you love. It's not necessarily what you believe. It's what you need. So think again. What, what, was, what, what were we after when we talked about what are we doing when we put our mind on things below? It's what we need. And to the extent that we're putting our heart and our minds in that, that Christ is not our life. Paul is saying, remember, realize, know, understand, believe, love that Christ is your life, and take pains to make Him your life. Take pains to do that. And that's why we spent two weeks on the next passage, or the next section in the chapter. It says, put these things to death. Mortify sin. And we listed all the things that that wage war against our souls. And we talked about what does it mean to put those things to death? How do we practically, forcefully, painfully make Christ our life? It's still in Paul's head. 
as he's talking about husbands and wives and slaves and masters. So now he's getting very, very practical, painfully practical. We looked at marriage. He also goes into how does, how does making Christ your life work in parenting? What does it mean for Christ to be your life as a dad, working with, with, with your children? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the most probably painful, hard, difficult ways to think about Christ being your life is when we're doing our work, is when we're at our vocations, is when we're at the office. You know, most Christian literature and most sermons and most things that are, that are taught and said, and I do it, so I'm, all, I'm part of this as well, are really addressed to what we do in nights on weekends. Very rarely do we talk, what is happening? What is happening in our hearts? How is Christ being our life in our hearts, in our lives, and all of that? Eight hours a day, five days a week. The gospel affects all of life. Not just, not just nights and weekends. Remember what we said about what is maturity? Maturity is not achieving some state of spiritual prowess but it's being able to apply the gospel to the realities of life. It's applying the good news of Jesus to the realities of life. That is maturity. So we're going to spend some time today working on this thing called work. I know you guys are here. It's Sunday. It's the weekend. Probably the last thing you guys want to think about right now. You're like, Chris, I'm here to escape that. Win the club. Let's dig into it. Because I, th- I think if we can grab hold of the gospel in this way, it can absolutely transform dynamically the way that you think about how you spend your life at work. And when I say work, I mean whatever our vocation is. So if you're a mom and you work at home or you work from the home or you have a career, I'm talking about you too. If you're a student, your job is to go to school and maybe something else. So I'm thinking about all realms, but my background is in the business world, so I may automatically use those terms, those analogies. Forgive me, I'm thinking about everything that you do for your vocation. What you do, nine to five, and beyond, five days a week, or seven days a week. Um, Now for those of you, when I read about slaves a little while ago, and your heart stopped, right? let me explain what this means. Um, Slavery. Paul is addressing here not what occurred in this country or the Western world in the 1700s, 1800s. Ray said, I've got three minutes to talk about this so I can move on. I'm going to do my best to convince you that what slavery is and what it isn't. This slavery that Paul's talking about is not racial and it wasn't for life. It wasn't forced enslavement by kidnappers, which is what Paul condemns in 1 Timothy 1.10 and calls and lists, lists these people called enslavers, along with murderers and those who hit their mom and moms and dads, worst people on the earth. Paul is not addressing a social institution like slavery, like enslavement, like we experience in, in this country. Um, in, the, in the Roman Empire in this day, people could become slaves for numerous reasons. One, they could be in debt. They could no longer pay, pay their bills. And so they would sell themselves into slavery until they could pay their debt off. Um, poor folks would often sell themselves 
into the, into the indentured servanthood of someone that was better off. So they wouldn't have to worry about their ins and outs and their meals and they could actually hope for a better life. And children were sometimes abandoned in the Roman Empire if you studied your history. Sometimes these abandoned children were taken in by people and they were raised as slaves. Um, most slaves were actually freed by the age of 30 in, in, in this context. And some of them could actually save money and buy their freedom. These folks were called freedmen. And you know, sometimes even the government would just make a decree and all the slaves that were in the Roman Empire would go free. So, very, very different. It was, a, it was an integral part of society. Up to one-third of the Roman Empire, the one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. That means that if I took, like, this section over here, all you all would be considered slaves. So it was a normal part of life. Um, it, it wasn't an aberration. It, it wasn't necessarily the horror that we think of it. Um, some slaves were certainly treated poorly, but some were treated really well, almost like a nanny or, 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 like, a, or, or like someone who worked in the home. Um, I don't know how nannies are treated, so I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, but some were doctors, lawyers, they were artists. A lot of slaves owned property and actually owned other slaves. We'll figure that out. Um, but they were not the poorest in society, and they were mostly better, edu- better educated than most. So in the Greek, that word is doulos, which actually means bondservant. Bondservant. But we like, but using the word slave, it's a good term because it, it helps us connect with, with, with what's going on. Because as much as you and I may think that we're slaves to our work or to our bosses or our companies, we can at least go home at night. So no matter what Paul is addressing, no matter what Paul is exhorting and saying to these folks, if it works for them, it can certainly work for us. No matter how much you complain about your boss and what you do and your job, it's not as bad as how these guys had it. So if it works for them, it can, it, it can work for us. And so when you think about it, it's much like a contract that you would sign as a professional athlete to, to play for a team, or maybe you sign a contract to work for a company for a certain number of years. That was a little more than three minutes, but here we go. Um, so I said all that to say that we have a lot in common with these people that Paul is addressing. So we can take what he's saying here and apply it to our life. Work. God's original intention about this. As Robert was saying a few weeks ago, God intended marriage in the beginning for man and woman to work together to, to go in a direction, to spread God's glory, to reveal who He was. Marriage, a picture of who God is and His love for the church. God created man and woman, put them in the garden, and set them in order. Perfect peace, perfect harmony, no sin. Set them in the garden. And sin came we turned on each other. In the same way, God actually gave us work before the fall. Before sin, God gave Adam a job. So they set him in the garden. Set him in the garden to cultivate it, to till it, to work it. Not for himself. Not for what Adam could get out of it. But he actually gave Adam a job so that God's particulars and who he was might be known through what he accomplished so different from the way that we think about work now. It's become such a self-centered thing, and we're going to get at the root of that today. Um, let's go back to our text. It says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, remember, 
Not all slaves were treated very well. So this is a pretty tall order. I want to think about this idea of work in two ways. There's two kinds of people in this room. Some of you, you guys live, actually I'll start off, you guys work in order to live. You work in order to live. You do everything that you do in order to get to the weekend. The other half of you, you guys live to work. You guys, you, you guys pour yourself so much into your jobs and into your career, and you derive all of your worth and self-satisfaction out of it, you live in order to work. Both of these categories, no matter which one you fit in, we're, we're going to be talking about how, how we can be freed from that, how that can change in us. Because both of those people, no matter whether you're just working, whether you're just living to work, and you're consumed, or whether you're working just to get to the weekend, neither of us are trusting God the way that we should. So, the reality is this. We're all trusting something outside of ourselves for identity and meaning. When we find it, we have peace. We feel fulfilled. This is what we call worship. So no matter whether you are living to work and you're saying, my life is found in my career and what I do, you're feeling fulfilled by that. You're actually worshiping your job. Now, let's say you're on the other end and you, and, and you are working just to live. That means that your work to you is meaningless. What you're doing is actually meaningless in itself. You do all that you can just to make money so you can get, you live for 5 o'clock on Fridays. You just can't wait to get out of there so you can actually enjoy life. You're finding fulfillment and satisfaction in your leisure. See, so we're both worshiping something. And neither of it, and neither of it is God. So, the reality is that we do this. Paul gets to here. He says, do everything they're commanded to do, not by way of eye service, but as people pleasers. People pleasers. He is getting to something that rules us. Rules us. He's actually getting to the biggest thing that hinders us in actually working and doing what God has called us to do. It's this idea and this passion and this drive that we have to please other people. Now you may be thinking, I don't, I don't have a passion to please other people. What does is, what is pleasing other people have to do with, with being consumed by my job? It's connected, and I'm going to show you in a second. Now this is really, today I'm really giving the second part of a two-part message. The first part would be to really dig into what are we like and why do we have this mentality of we simply... We simply work to live. That I can't get into today. Maybe I'll blog on it real soon. We're going to talk about why we're going to dig deeper into those of us that work to live. I'm sorry, live to work. Live to work. In our vocation, let me ask you some really hard questions. Who are you working to please? 
Is it your company? Is it your boss? Maybe it's the one who writes your paycheck. Who is it that makes your decisions about your job or your career? Is that the one whom you're serving? If that's the case, it will not go well with you. Because this person's opinion of you has become your definition. And it will crush you. Think about this. We will live in constant fear. Am I ever doing enough? Am I really doing enough to please them? Anxiety. I wonder what they really think of me. Criticism. Even constructive criticism will destroy us. So we get very defensive and we're not very much fun to work with. We will live for compliments and you make sure that everything that we do gets noticed. Does it bother you when you do something and the person or someone doesn't notice it? Isn't that just great inside of you? It take, I mean, it would take wild horses to pull you back from saying something. Here's, here's an even worse one. We feel threatened. You feel threatened at work? You feel threatened by everyone else around you? Oh, someone else is getting the credit. Wait a minute, that was my idea. These thoughts can plague us. We're so tempted as well to be dishonest. So tempted to be dishonest. Pleasing our bosses. We, we know possibly, and I was talking to someone this week, and it really helped me flesh this out. Honesty in, in the workplace is probably one of the hardest things to come by. For a couple reasons. One, we will automatically, in our minds, get to the point where we realize that if I tell the truth in this situation, I could lose my job. Or it won't look good for me. If we are in our workplaces trying to please our bosses and we feel like this is the person who I have to please and God is not part of the picture, we will lie. I've done it. Maybe you've done it. The temptation is severe. It's only, it's only when we take our work and realize that God is in control and we're doing this not to please ourselves, not to please our bosses, not to please our companies, but we're actually doing what we're doing here as a result of what God has done for me in my heart. I'm actually working for God. If that is not your heart, if that's not your commitment, you will lie. You will lie out of self-preservation. You will. It takes... It takes a severe revelation of finding yourself in the Lord to be able to say that obedience and honesty is really the source of joy. It really is. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. I mean, have you ever had something at work and you're like, I know I should say something, I know I should say something, but then you're like... I say something, it could mean this, 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 and this. And by the end of it, you're in, in your head, you're already looking for a new job. But obedience is the source of your joy. I was talking with someone this week that had that kind of on them, and they knew they should say something, but they were afraid to say something. He said to me, he said, you know what? I would rather know the pain of losing my job and the burden that's on my conscience right 
Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Um, now, this also works, this people-pleasing, this, this finding our identity in people's approval of us, finding our life not in what God thinks of us or how He cares for us in Christ, but finding our life in what other people's opinion is of us. You know that this works in other ways besides just our, our, our jobs. Let me just make a couple a- applications here. Husbands and wives. You know that wives can be easily trapped by this too. Everything they do can be to please their husband, but not for his sake, but for their sake. It's so easy for wives to live off the approval of their husbands and to serve them and to want to make them happy and to, to do all the right things for them, but not because they love them, but because their life is defined by what their husbands think of them. And the husbands love this deal. They love it. Because it works for them. But the difference is so subtle. On the outside, everything can look so great. The house can be clean. The kids can be well-behaved. Kids can be homeschooled really well. The job is going great that they're doing outside of the home. And you're able to balance it all. But, but wives can die inside because they're not doing it to please the Lord. They're doing it because their life consists in what their husband or their children think of them. It can look so good on, on, on the outside. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, don't serve... Do not serve by way of eye service. Don't do it just so people can see you. Don't be people pleasers. He's not just concerned about what we do. We always want to know what to do. We always want to know exactly what we should do. But Paul is much more concerned with how we do it and why we do it. Think about that in, in, in other ways as well. You know, husbands can do the same thing to their wives. In one of our small group discussions a couple weeks ago, we were just talking and, and how we, we husbands can tend to do everything just to keep their wife happy. And we were going through all the different isms that we, were, that we, that we use to fill the gap in our lives and to, and to make sense of our lives, make meaning of our lives. And we were talking about mysticism and socialism and, and, and uh, academicism and all these other things. And this guy said, you know, I suffer from wifeism. Like, I realize I'm doing everything I do just to keep things peaceful, just to keep things well. We're going to see how that's a detriment to our souls. Because there's no joy and no love in that kind of slavish serving life. None. So, how's this work for children and fathers? Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they be discouraged. I'm not going to don't have time to get into this. But, this. but there's one thing I will say. I reverse those. Functionally, I care more about my children breaking my rules and it doesn't please me. Do you realize that your children don't break your rules? They don't break your rules. They break God's. And our concern should be much more about them not pleasing us or them pleasing or not pleasing us. It should be much more about do our children please the Lord. And I have fallen into this trap recently the last couple of months and maybe even longer than that that I care more about how my kids please or don't please me than what they're doing actually displeases God. And I'm, so, so, I'm subjecting my kids to the idol of myself 
And you know what the Bible calls that for them? Frustrating, discouraging. The most discouraging thing that we can do for our kids is to be upset at them because they don't please us. And we treat them and we learn them and we raise them. We say, fear the Lord, trust the Lord. And all the time with our actions, what are we saying? Please me. Make sure I'm happy. Obey all my rules so everything will go well with you. A little bit on parenting. That's all I'm going to say about it. Anymore and I'm getting in trouble. Um, And guys, it works in our relationships too and our friendships. You know you can easily find joy, peace, identity in the fact that around you, you have people that think the way you do, they approve of the way that you think, approve of what you do. You can raise your kids the same way. You can, you can enjoy the same things together. Those all are wonderful, awesome things that we want to cultivate. We want everyone in order to enjoy as a fruit of the gospel. But you know that those relationships, we can put so much stock and so much of our identity in what everyone else thinks around us. God's perception of who God is, what, how much He loves us, what He has done for us in Christ, loses weight in our soul. So we're finding so much satisfaction, so much life, so much pleasure for all the people around us. We can do that to the inclusion and in, and in response to what God has done for us in Christ, or we can actually put our self-worth and identity in those things to where I'm fulfilled and I'm at peace as long as everyone around me approves of me. And if there's any conflict in that situation, as a people pleaser like I am, I will do anything I can to either, one, make sure there is no conflict with all my friends and all the people that approve of me. So what I'll do, I'll start being fake. I won't bring up stuff that should be, that should be brought up. And it'll get very surfacy. Or if there is conflict, I'll do everything I can to fix it. Because I'm finding myself, my identity, in these people. So what we do, we don't ever really deal with anything. And well, actually, I was having a conversation with Dave Jackson about this. Really helped me a couple weeks ago. He said, we will actually do everything we can fix these relationships, keep all these plates around us spinning, and we'll say sorry for stuff, we're not sorry. In fact, my wife hit me with that a couple, a couple weeks ago. We were getting ready for bed, and I said something. Um, the details are escaping me at the moment, but I said something, and I was like, oh, crap, I shouldn't have said that. And she reacted, like probably she should or shouldn't have, and I said, sweetie, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. She said, you're not sorry. <laughs> I said, you're right, I'm not sorry. I just didn't want to stay up for another half hour talking about it. Um, but no, we're, we're so eager to put stuff down, to, to re- resolve conflict, because we're trusting in these connections so much. Trusting in them. We don't care what God thinks anymore. And if we stay in these relationships this way, God gets moved to the outside. God and his, and his, who He is, God is no person in Christ becomes weightless to us. And we become indifferent 
become indifferent. We care so much more about people, not as much about God, we become indifferent. And remember, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. We've got to be careful. We have to, we have to make sure that we're not idolizing all these things around us. And we'll do everything we can to get that idol back on the shelf so we can be at peace again. I'm going to get more back to this, to that issue in just a second. But first, back to work. Back to talking about work. Um, Colossians 3, the, the, the next part, says, Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord. Heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily. Work heartily. What does this mean? Work, work heartily. Does this mean work harder? Does mean work longer? Some of you, I've talked to you, are already working 50, 60, maybe more hours a week. And now you're hearing Paul's command to work more heartily? Is, is this what he's saying? Is he saying work anymore? You say, I can't work anymore. It is something different, thank goodness. Usually, when we mean heartily, we mean with a lot of heart, a lot of passion, a lot of energy. It's not what Paul's saying here. If you look at the correlating passage in Ephesians, heartily literally means from the soul. It's from the soul. Do your work, not as eye service, pleasing people, but do your work from the soul. And this is where it gets tough. It means that we're actually doing our work not just to get through it, not just to please someone. We're doing it from the depth of our being. Now, I've talked to, I've talked to some of us, and this is how your, this is how your day works. And mine, would, when, when I was working in marketing, it would work very often like this as well. In the morning, you're ready to go. Like all the planets are aligned. You are... You have a sense of God's grace in your heart and on your life. And, you know, you actually are meditating on God. And your heart is full. But yet, about by 2 o'clock in the morning, you're absolutely dissipated. The passion that you had when you ran into the office in the morning is gone. That sense of being gelled and, man, all the planets are together and we're going and moving and I'm actually going to serve God today in what I'm doing. By 2 o'clock, you're like, who is Jesus? Y'all never had days like that? Oh, man. It's a, I think it's a common problem. It's, I think it's a common scenario. So why is it why is it that work saps our spiritual life out of us? Why is it that we actually get that way? Is it that we make no connection between serving the Lord and our work? We make no connection. Now, I don't have time to exhaustively go in, into this, but our work should be done as a worshipful response God has done for us. But yet it becomes such a sapping, deadening, lifeless thing. Why is our soul so removed from it? Why is it such a despair? I'll offer this to you. We cannot get on with serving God 
in and through our vocation because our, because our vocation and our job is our God. We cannot serve God in it because it is our God itself. The closer we get to it, the harder we work at it, the more we worship it, the more we bow down to it, the more we serve it, the farther our heart is being removed from God. Why is this? We need to spend some time unpacking all of this. That the more we work, the more we trust in our work to give us only what God can give, and the worse off we become. We're not free to serve the Lord with our work, to glorify God with our work, because the work itself gets in the way. We either work just to live, or we live consumed by our work. What ends up happening is that because of this, our work suffers. We're, we're unable to actually do work from our souls because we're so disconnected from it. And we remove God from it. So we end up not doing as well as we should. We end up not doing as good a work, whether we end up not painting as well, or we end up not writing a brief as well, or we end up we're not doing research as well, or we end, we end up not doing all kinds of things, not as well as we should, because our hearts are so removed from it. And all those people around us are giving their souls to it. They're giving their lives to it. They're giving everything they have to it. And you're not. So when you put those things together, your work isn't as good. But you know what we do? We end up baptizing our mediocrity and saying, because I serve God and love God and need to have time for Him, my work doesn't need to be as good. Y'all ever done that? You ever thought that way? It's so tempting. It's so tempting. But I want to submit to you that the gospel not just changes what we're like at work, but it changes what our work is like. The gospel actually does that and because we conceive, because we idolize our work, everything suffers. But if we were free from the pressure to perform for our bosses, our companies, for the accolades of family and friends about our careers, then we would be free to work from God's pleasure in us and for God's pleasure through us. We have to remove, we have to remove the idol first. What we, what we produce can actually be better because we're doing it from a place of rest. Who we are in God through Christ. Instead of a place of restlessness. Always trying to get something. Always trying to achieve. Always trying to fill the hole in our meaningless life. Do you think that you could ever, ever think about your work this way? Look at your boss. Think about your company. And if your wife and you fit in that category I was talking about before, think about your husbands. And husbands, if you're thinking about your wives in the wrong way, say this to them. Right, well, don't say it to them out loud, but say it to them in your head. I don't work for you. I don't work for you. Walk into your place of employment tomorrow morning. I don't work for you. I don't work for you. Please don't say that because then you won't work for them. <laughs> but this is the condition of our heart. I'm serving Jesus here. I'm serving Jesus here. You say, Chris, that's easy for you to say. Look what you do for a living. Let me tell you, you know how hard it is for me? 
Did not work for you guys? I have to say, I know Robert has to say, I know Raymond has to say, every time we get up here, I don't work for you. I want to serve you, I want to love you, I want to be everything you God has called me to be for you, but I don't work for you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that I serve. It's a completely different life. You don't want me to work for you. I'm a bad employee. I don't, you don't want me to work for you. That won't be serving your interests. That won't be serving what God wants. The temptation is so strong. And it's for, it's for us too. All right. So, we realize at this point, we're slaves to what our bosses think of us. If not, then, then you, can, you can exit yourself for this part of, the, part of the message. But my encouragement to you is to think deeply. What are you, what are you a slave to? Whose opinion are you a slave to? Think, think hard. Whose opinion to, about you really matters? Whose word to you either, set, either sets your week right throws it off. If you're anything like me, I know there's something like that in your life. We get trapped in this cycle of pleasing people for their favor and approval, not because we love them. Not because we love them. We're enslaved to them because they've taken the place of God in our lives. Let's be honest. This people-pleasing is way too hard for us. Way too hard for us to get rid of. Way too difficult. It's such a part of our nature that that's why we call it enslavement. You say, Chris, I choose to do. I, I choose to do these things. I choose to obey. I choose to disobey. The Bible says that we're a slave to sin. We're a slave to these things. You cannot, by your own willpower and by your own effort, go in to your job tomorrow morning and say, I don't work for you can't do it. Our souls and the roots of our being have so enwrapped themselves around certain things that to let go of them would actually mean for us to die. And it is incapable for the soul on its own accord to let go. We're absolutely incapable. We think we're free to do it. But it's only the illusion of freedom. We think we are free to sin or free to do right, but the Bible says we're free to do neither. We're actually not free at all. Sweet. I just got a text message. God saying, hurry up. Oh, no, maybe it was from Robert. Um, okay. Let's look at Romans 6. Do you not know I think I've got this on the slide. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, this is Romans 6, chapter, um, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're a slave of the one you obey. You're a slave to the one that you obey. Every idol, everything that we set up in our lives to please, has rules. What you trust in, what you put your hope in, has rules. And if you obey those rules, 
that thing will pay off for you. If you don't obey its rules, you fail. Everybody, everyone's trust has rules. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Look at verse 20. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The ends of those things in death. You say, wait, don't I choose to sin? Don't I choose to obey and worship God? Yes, but only as far as this. You are only free to choose that which you think is most beneficial for you. That makes sense. Let me say it again. You are, you are free to choose, but only because of your human nature, the way God made us, you are only free to choose that which you at the moment think is most beneficial for you. Sin has so blinded our mind and deadened our hearts and closed our ears that we cannot see who God is. His beauty and His glory and His love for us in the Gospel. We cannot see it. We cannot perceive it. So sin is the only option that we have for fulfillment. That's what it means to be a slave. Because sin is so deceitful, because it changes what we see, it changes what we want, it it messes with our heads and our minds and our hearts so much we can't see who God is. So we're absolutely enslaved to it because we can't see God. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. Are you free to choose? Yes, but you're only free to choose what you think is best for you. You can't let go. You can't. You won't. All of life will come down to this question. What can this thing, what can this job, what can this entity do for me? If I had a t-shirt that, have y'all been on CNN.com recently? You see, you can, with a button you can click and get a t-shirt that has the headline of the day on it. Um, well, if I had a t-shirt that wore the headline of my life, as a senior in high school, on, on my way to college, it would have said this. It would have said, I cannot wait to see what sin can finally do for me. I mean, honestly. I mean, honestly, I can't wait. And this is where the Bible really helps us. It lets us define sin in our relationship to it. Sin... This enslavement, it's not a weakness that we can get over. It's not a sickness that we need medicine from. Left to ourselves, we're absolutely slaves and bound to it. I said in the beginning, why is this term slave so helpful to keep? Instead of bondservant, the way Paul uses it. See, in the same way that a bondservant would sell themselves into slavery, we have done this. We've done the same thing. And the terms of our through sin and the terms of our servanthood are so high, we cannot pay it all. We cannot buy our freedom. So what is the answer to this? Through first Corinthians chapter seven. This verse should come up in two. Verse twenty two.
better answer it. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free and called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with Christ. Do not become the slaves of men. You were bought with a price. Don't become the slaves of men. See, we're slaves in two ways. One, we're bound to pay for what we've done wrong. Like I said before, we have not sinned against another human. We've sinned against God. A righteous, holy, forever, awesome God. And the price for that is too much for us to pay. Only God is rich enough. Only God is worthy enough. Only God is righteous enough. Only God could pay for our freedom. We can't pay for it. We can work all our lives and never be good enough, never be smart enough to make up for all the things that we fall short in. So the price for our freedom is the perfect life that Jesus lived. The perfect life that Jesus lived. And the death that he then died in our place. He bought our freedom. We're a slave. We read, you're bought for the price. You've actually been procured by someone stronger, by someone greater, and by means more effective than anything that we can enslave ourselves to. We have been purchased. But we're also slaves in another way. And this gets almost deeper in our souls sometimes. We're slaves of the people and the things we've chosen to trust. We're slaves of those things. Paul cannot just say, stop being a slave. Just get a grip. See what this thing is doing to you and stop. You can't just say, stop trusting in people's opinions of you and their assessments and stop finding your definition in the earthly aspect of work. No. You can't just command that to us. That command would put us under more condemnation and more judgment than we already were because we are already convinced that we cannot save ourselves. We can't do it. It is from this heart, in this position, once we realize we can't save ourselves, we can't change ourselves. We cry out to God. We cry out to God to save us. We cry out to God to let us go from the things that we have sold ourselves to. And what does He do in this moment? He opens our hearts. He opens our blind eyes to see the sufficiency. To see the sufficiency of us being loved and cared for by God. The sufficiency of pleasing Him. That is enough to give our lives to. The sufficiency of God having approval and love for us, not because of what we've done for ourselves, but because of all that He has done for us in Christ Jesus. He opens our eyes and our hearts so we can finally be done with all these lesser things and put our love and our trust and our affections in the sufficiency of who God is in Christ. That's what He does. You cry out for, for God to save you. That's what He does. He lets you see. He lets you love. He lets you believe. He lets you behold. He lets you finally understand the goodness of God. And then, when we have fully perceived and understood and loved the goodness of God, it pushes out our affections for anything else. It pushes out our dependence on everything else around us. It pushes out what our bosses think of us. It pushes out what our companies are going to do to us if we lie. 
it pushes out. What am I going to do if this person doesn't do it? Pushes it out. And we're then, and only then, able to please the Lord. Only then do the things that we do stop becoming idols for us. If our hearts can behold God in this way, we will leave our idols and run to Him. We'll now belong to Him. We'll now serve Him. We'll now fear Him. And because you now fear God, it absolutely overrules any other fear of man that you have. If you can fear God because of this, it will overrule and overturn every other fear. And then thankfully, and lovingly, and desperately become not a slave of sin, finally and forever become a slave of God. Father, this is something that we can be absolutely honest with you about. Because of who you are, being in this place, God, we, we don't want to we don't want to make light of this in this moment. We don't want to not let you do this work in our hearts. Lord, we say to you, Lord, have your way with us. Lord, we confess that we have trusted so many of the things beside you your dishonor and to our shame. But God, we now turn to you knowing that we've been bought with a price. You don't have to be the slave to that. You don't have to be the slave to this thing. Now let this truth deep in our souls. Let us find ourselves in you. You purchased us, you won us, you bought us. But help us not get out of this moment God, being free from the things we've given ourselves to. God, free us, we pray, to be your slave. Amen. Take